Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Alexandra. She was having terrible digestive issues. She was bloated all the time. And it got worse and worse as the day went on to the point where she felt like she looked pregnant and couldn't even button her pants by the end of the day. Her bowels were all over the place and her day was determined by the state of her stomach, which was pretty much not good every day. In addition to feeling bloated, she felt like she was gaining weight and she just didn't feel well overall. She has researched digestive health and tried changing her diet. She removed many foods and that helped, but then she found herself on a very restrictive diet, so that was really hard to maintain. And if she would have even a little bit of some of the foods that she took out, she would feel even worse than before. She's tried over-the-counter gas remedies, but not much has changed with those. She then tried digestive enzymes, and those helped a little, but not quite enough. She then added probiotics, thinking that must be her answer. But those didn't seem to help, and in fact, they even made it worse. She even tried different brands, things that she saw advertised on social media, but still not much better. She knew her gut was out of balance, but she just wasn't sure where to go from there, and that is when she saw me. When I met Alexandra and did a very detailed health history, I sensed she had some overgrowth and dysbiosis and that her microbiome did in fact need support. But I knew that we needed to do things in a specific order so that we can solve her health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about all of the issues Alexandra was having. Joining me on the show to talk much more about this is Dr. William Davis. You may know of Dr. Davis from his many TV and radio appearances and his New York Times bestselling book, Wheat Belly. He now has a brand new book that just came out this week called Super Gut, a four-week plan to reprogram your microbiome, restore health, and lose weight, which harnesses the power of the human microbiome and the silent epidemic of SIBO. I thought he would be the perfect person to bring on for this episode. Dr. Davis, I am so excited to have you. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Ina. Glad to be here. Thank you. 
I talk about the gut a lot on the show, and it's such a cornerstone for really everything when it comes to our health, and there's just so much to talk about here. Now, just to make sure that everyone's on the same page, can you first connect a few dots for us? How is the gut so crucial to our overall health? I think that's the revelation of the century, Ina, that is this bunch of microbes living in our GI tracts that we thought nothing of. Take an antibiotic, have diarrhea for a couple of weeks, right, and you recover, and everything's back to normal. That, of course, is not true. And it took us many years of screwing it up to recognize just how powerful and essential this collection of microbes really is for human health. And from the microbiome and all of these bugs, and it sounds like it's really for everything. You know, one of the things that you talk about in your book is obviously for overall health and digestive health, but also for anti-aging and weight loss. So it's really everything, right? I can't think of very many aspects of health, Ina, that are not somehow influenced or outright caused by disruptions in the microbiome. But I think it's, before we scare people, it's important to recognize once you understand that, that there's been massive disruption of the microbiome in modern humans, that it also points away towards regaining control, regaining control over weight, over skin rashes, over arthritis pain, over healthier skin and losing wrinkles, over sleep, over just about every aspect of health. In fact, I think just about every human disease needs to be reconsidered in light of the microbiome. So what are some things that can offset our microbiome? You mentioned antibiotics, and I think that a lot of people are familiar with that at this point and know that they can offset the bugs. But what are some other things that can make our microbiome go awry? Sadly, it's a long list. So antibiotics, of course, other drugs like stomach acid blocking drugs like Prilosec and Protonix and ranitidine, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which many millions of people take, drugs like ibuprofen, naproxen, diclofenac, massive disruption of the microbiome, synthetic sweeteners like aspartame, sucralose, and saccharin, emulsifying agents like polysorbate 80 and carboxymethylcellulose, and even something as common as stress can disrupt the microbiome. So as we get older, it's virtually guaranteed, virtually guaranteed that you at least have a disrupted microbiome in your colon, if not the 30, the entire 30 feet of your GI tract. And this has, as you know, huge implications for how you feel. The dialogue you have in your brain, the quality of your sleep, the content of your dreams, whether you're happy and content or suicidal or hateful, all these things are determined to a great degree by the content of your microbiome. Yeah, well, your neurotransmitters are made mostly in the gut, right? So Mm -hmm. when people have offsets in their microbiome, one of the things that we often find are bugs that may not be good, or we can sometimes call them bad bugs. And one of the things that we see with that is something called SIBO. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What is SIBO? Yeah, so microbes in the colon, that's where microbes belong that there can be microbes in the upper GI tract, but most of them should be concentrated in the colon. That's why the colon has a two-layer mucus barrier to protect the colon lining against these microbes. The small bowel is not meant to have loads and loads of microbes and therefore has only a a thin single-layer mucus barrier. Well, unfortunately, all the things we're exposed to, like antibiotics and emulsifying agents, etc., disrupt that balance. And stool microbes like E. coli and Klebsiella and Citrobacter, proliferate. They outmuscle healthy species 
And then in many people, by my estimation, we're talking about one in three people or over 100 million people. And these people, unhealthy stool microbes have proliferated and then ascended up into the ileum, jejunum, duodenum, and stomach, uh, resulting in 30 feet of trillions of microbes. Now, as you know, microbes don't live for 70 years. They live for hours. And so these microbes live and die rapidly, trillions of microbes. And when they die, they release a lot of their byproducts, their breakdown products, into the bloodstream. And that's a process relatively recently described by a French group in 2007 called endotoxemia, because the walls of bacteria are lined with something called endotoxin. And endotoxemia is extremely toxic to humans. But this recently recognized phenomenon explains how microbes in the GI tract can be experienced as rosacea or psoriasis in the skin or as depression in the brain or as Alzheimer's dementia in the brain or as the joint swelling and pain of rheumatoid arthritis or in the intestines as ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. In other words, virtually all human disease needs to be reconsidered, redefined in light of the role of the microbiome. And SIBO is a big Deal. I thought, you know, I thought SIBO was this rare thing. The thing that changed my mind about that was uh, just a few years ago, there was a device, a consumer device invented by an engineer in Dublin, Ireland. His name is Dr. Angus Short and his girlfriend, now wife, had irritable bowel syndrome and she was told to go on a low FODMAPS diet. And he saw how difficult it was for her and she would get inadvertent exposures and have gas, bloating and diarrhea. So he invented a device that measures hydrogen gas on the breath. And this came out a couple of years ago, two or three years ago. But he thought it was only useful. He's an engineer. He thought it was only useful for people with IBS with FODMAPs intolerance. Well, I got a hold of it. I called him up and I said, Angus, do you know what you invented? He says, no, I don't. I said, this is a device that maps out the location of bacteria in everybody including people with food intolerances, not just the FODMAPs, but the histamine-containing foods and nightshades and uh, prebiotic fibers and legumes, all those things. People say, oh, I can't eat this th list of 37 foods because I did blood testing. Well, that is more often than not SIBO. It's, so the elimination of that food may make you feel better temporarily, but it was really a sign that something is massively disrupted in your GI tract, and that is more often not SIBO. Yes. And what you're saying is so important. You know, I speak about this to my clients and I show a lot because people often say, okay, well, I'm doing this diet and I feel better. And I'm like, okay, that's great. But what are you going to do when you want to actually eat something that's off the diet? That's kind of a Band-Aid, even though it's helping. It's not really the answer. There's a reason why your body can't process that, right? Oh, very good. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I think there is, of course, a time and place in food sensitivity testing. And I do use that. And a lot of practitioners use that. But it's really looking upstream. Like, where did that come from, right? Like, what created it? So that's really, really important. With SIBO, that's the overgrowth of bacteria that's then crawling up the intestines. What about SIFO? That's not talked about as often. You know, SIBO, I think, is becoming more and more popular, but SIFO isn't talked about as much. What's SIFO? 
So just like there's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, there's also small intestinal fungal overgrowth. We need better evidence, but the best evidence we have suggests about a third of the people who have um, the symptoms of SIBO really have CFO. That is the proliferation of fungal species like Candida glabrata, Candida tropicalis, Candida albicans, Malassezia, and some others. There's about 200 different fungal species that can proliferate. A lot of the symptoms are tough to distinguish from SIBO, but it's typically bloating, diarrhea, skin rashes like eczema are very common with SIBO. So is um, sugar cravings, very, which is kind of a curious thing because uh, fungi love sugar. And if you have overgrowth of fungi and somehow no one's identified the mediator, must produce something that gets to your brain and tells you to eat more sugar, to thereby feed the, the fungal species. So I, I believe it's a lot more common than we think. It is tough to get rid of because fungi are very good at avoiding eradication. So it's typically a little tougher effort. Many people do have to do both, address SIBO and CFO either concurrently or sequentially. But it is worth knowing about. Unfortunately, while we now have a consumer device to identify SIBO, people don't have to buy the device, but it is a level of assurance that's helpful for some people. We don't have such a device, unfortunately, for fungal overgrowth. And either you have to go empirically, that is on your best judgment, or use a fungal, uh, some other means of identifying fungal overgrowth, such as stool testing. Tell me a little bit more about the device. We started talking about it, but I'd love to hear more because um, this is different than getting a breath test at your doctor, right? Right. It's the same gas being measured. And what I was uh, going to say about that was once I got the device and I started talking about it and many thousands of people started using this device, it became clear that SIBO was not this exceptional, unusual thing I thought, like I used to think. It's become clear in it. It's everywhere. It is everywhere. In fact, it was the exceptional person who tested negative. And even this device does not identify all forms of SIBO. There are, because it relies on the fact that if you feed bacteria, sugar or a prebiotic fiber, something that bacteria like to eat, and you produce hydrogen gas, because humans don't produce hydrogen gas, but bacteria do. If you produce it rapidly after consumption, particularly within the first 90 minutes, it means that bacteria are high up in the GI tract. And so it's essentially a device to map out where bacteria are. Uh, Unfortunately, right now, Angus Short has not yet changed the instructions with the device. So I do lay out in seven pages how to use it in the Super Gut book for our purposes, not just for FODMAPs and IBS, but for all food intolerances, for knowing if you have SIBO. You know what's surprising, you know, is if you look at All the science on SIBO. For instance, this question has been asked. What percentage of people with irritable bowel syndrome, uh, IBS, have SIBO? Well, it varies from study to study, but you'll see something like 12 to uh, uh, 44% or so of the healthy controls have SIBO. Mm -hmm. These are people who don't have gas, bloating, and diarrhea, yet they test positive for SIBO. But it really is everywhere. It is... the it is bigger than the epidemic of type 2 diabetes and prediabetes, one in three people. And I think that's conservative. Yeah, I agree. You know, looking at obviously our modern diet, our stress levels, the amount of chemicals we're exposed to, the glyphosates, I, I mean, you name it, right? These are all the things that contribute and we're all exposed. So it makes sense why it's harder to not have it than to have it these days. And the effects are cumulative, 
The older you get, the more likely it is you have massive disruption of your microbiome. But it also means that part of the solution is to address the microbiome. If you're depressed, taking an antidepressant is not the solution. It may help temporarily, but if the real cause is, let's say, SIBO and endotoxemia, which, by the way, is becoming very clear, a lot of people with depression, it's really SIBO and the endotoxemia. I'm shocked, even to this day, that a German group performed two studies in which they injected the endotoxin that circulates in the bloodstream in SIBO and endotoxemia. They injected the endotoxin into normal, non-depressed people, and it resulted in depression, profound depression within three hours, and MRI scans of their brain showed all the hallmarks of depression, which I, I give them credit for doing it. It's very courageous to have done that because when you inject endotoxin and you miscalculate just by a little bit, you can kill somebody. But they proved, right, right. They proved that for many people, depression is a disease of the microbiome. That's fascinating. I mean, that reminds me of you know, when sometimes people do fecal transplants, you know, they say you have to be careful about where you're getting it because you're getting the, you know, not just the good bacteria, but you're getting everything else from that person. And sometimes that can also affect mood and, you know, people can see other changes. So it's probably by a similar mechanism. Uh, absolutely. And I would, I would counter this notion of healthy people. That is, I think we've all disrupted our microbiomes. You know that the studies of the microbiomes of hunter-gatherer populations, that is people who've never taken antibiotics, don't take statin drugs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, don't have emulsifying agents in their peanut butter, ice cream, and salad dressings. And they also, by the way, have no colon cancer, no hemorrhoids, no irritable bowel syndrome, no ulcerative colitis, no Crohn's disease. They have none of these modern problems we have. But their microbiome is completely different. They have microbes we don't have. We have microbes they don't have. Of course, the odd thing that your listeners may have heard is that even these populations, as far apart as South America and Africa and Australia, New Zealand, and New Guinea, they have microbiomes that are oddly similar to each other, suggesting that they have the so-called Stone Age microbiome. But it illustrates just how far modern people have drifted in their microbiome composition. So if someone is wondering what their microbiome is like and perhaps they have symptoms or perhaps they may not, because like you said, a lot of people who don't even have IBS symptoms can have issues and people may want to know, do they have SIBO? Do they have CFO first? What are some of the best ways? You mentioned the device and then what are some other ways that they can find out? Or is there maybe a way to figure it out through a questionnaire as well? Does it have to be a test? There are questionnaires or just a simple list of what I call telltale signs. So some of the signs that you have SIBO, that is microbes that have proliferated and occupy 30 feet of your of your GI tract, some of the telltale signs, signs are food intolerances, like we talked about, but especially food intolerances that became evident within the first hour to, to 90 minutes. So if you say, if I eat the black beans, I've got bloating, gas, and diarrhea in about 30 minutes, that is virtually 100% reliable that you have SIBO. Because that black beans, the, the prebiotic fiber in the black beans can't reach the colon within 90 minutes. And so anything that occurs within the first 90 minutes is a, a sure sign of SIBO. Having fat, fat malabsorption. If you look in the toilet and you see fat droplets or staining of the of the toilet where water meets porcelain, that's a good sign because very, there are other causes of malabsorption, but in everyday people, they're uncommon. 
and the by far the most common cause is is SIBO because when microbes are sitting in the duodenum where bile and pancreatic enzymes uh, are released and disrupt fat absorption, that's a good sign of SIBO. Interesting. So with that, I just want to ask you really quick. So if someone is seeing like those things or they just feel like when they eat foods that are very fatty, they don't feel well or they have diarrhea right away, you think it's more so that than possibly having more sluggish gallbladder function or low enzymes or just poor emulsification of the fat? Yeah. I find that people who, for instance, had their gallbladder removed and they say, I can't eat fat because it really messes with my digestion. Those people almost all have SIBO. And by the way, if you took those stones that were removed surgically and you looked at them for bacteria, they're filled with stool species. Now, what in the world are stool species doing, like E. coli, 24 feet up from the colon? Oh my gosh, yes. So gallstones equals SIBO. So those fat intolerances are not due to inadequate bile, because the liver is still producing plenty of bile. It's that you have microbes that are blocking fat digestion. Mm, That's a really, really good point. So for everyone listening, if you are having issues with fat digestion, and that also can look like having low vitamin D levels, even though you're taking vitamin D, you know, that's telling us that something's going on with the absorption of the fat. So that's probably related as well. Yeah, good point. You know, I also find that some condition, this is evident in, in the science, that some conditions are so frequently associated with SIBO that if you have these conditions, it's a pretty safe assumption you've got SIBO. Fibromyalgia is at the top of the list. If we believe that Mark Pimentel's data out of Cedar sinai UCLA, he's the kind of the guru in the conventional world for SIBO. He's published a lot of very instructive science. And in his series from a few years back, 100% of people with fibromyalgia not only have SIBO, but have it to a severe degree. And so you can imagine taking an anti-inflammatory drug does nothing to address the cause of fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia just makes it worse, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yes, Uh, irritable bowel syndrome. It varies depending on the study and the population looked at, but as much as 84% of people with irritable bowel syndrome also have SIBO, either making it worse or causing it outright. People with autoimmune diseases like Hashimoto's and rheumatoid arthritis and uh, many others, or neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, Alzheimer's dementia, cognitive decline, multiple sclerosis. These people are very high likelihood of having SIBO. People with intestinal diseases like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, celiac disease, very high likelihood. And I point that out because I think it would be reasonable if you don't have an air device or uh, don't have access to formal H2 breath testing from your from your healthcare practitioner, I think it would be reasonable to embark on a program of eradicating the SIBO because the tools to get rid of SIBO have gotten a whole lot better just in the last few years. And because so many people have it, I definitely agree with you. We can't hurt and it doesn't necessarily require really strong medications like you know we used to use in the past. So if someone suspects that they have it, even if they don't have a test, but they have all of these symptoms or perhaps they have some of these diseases and they want to eradicate it, where would they start? You know, in a, up till uh, uh, maybe a year and a half ago or so, I would have said that one option is to talk to your regular doctor or gastroenterologist, and he'll prescribe he or she will prescribe rifaximin, the conventional antibiotic, which is about forty to sixty percent effective. It's not all that effective. It's very expensive, and of course, the problem was caused in the first place by antibiotics. So it's not the nicest thing to do to give so many more antibiotics, and of course. Conventional doctors, John Q. Primary Care and gastroenterologists, typically doesn't, they don't tell you why you got it. They don't tell you 
what to do when it recurs, because it will, what to do to prevent those recurrences. So the conventional solutions are very unsatisfactory. Well, and they don't address CIFO either, right? Because it's an antibiotic. And they don't address CIFO either. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, I went through a period where I was very skeptical that herbal antibiotics worked, but then there was a study out of Johns Hopkins that compared rifaximin against two herbal antibiotic regimens, the candibactin regimen and the FC-sidled dysbiocide regimen, and showed, suggested these two regimens were superior to rifaximin, better success, and they actually worked in the rifaximin failure. So I did that for a while, and they do work. They're very nice, and they're much less costly than the prescription drug, but then I stumbled on something. You know, if you and I, or if your listeners take a conventional commercial probiotic, it will not eradicate SIBO. It might reduce some of the bloating. It might reduce some of the diarrhea, but you're still left with 30 feet of trillions of unhealthy microbes. So I asked some different questions. I said, what if instead of a haphazard slapdash commercial probiotic, we instead chose species with characteristics like it it colonizes the upper GI tract because that's where all the action is in SIBO, and produce what are called bactericins, that is, antibiotics produced by bacteria effective against the species of SIBO. So I picked several microbes, such as Lactobacillus gasseri, the BNR17 strain, and we know this microbe colonizes the upper GI tract and produces up to seven bactericins. It's a bactericin powerhouse. So we did so- I did something further. We took three species, Lactobacillus gasseri, two strains of Lactobacillus ruteri, and a strain of Bacillus coagulans for all those reasons, colonization, upper GI tract, production of bactericins. Then I tweaked yogurt making. You know, if you, if you buy yogurt at the grocery store, they fermented it for about four hours. Oh, that's it? Yeah. So ruteri, for instance, doubles every three hours. You know, they don't have mommy and daddy microbes, of course. They just double asexual reproduction. One micro becomes two, two becomes four. Well, rotary reproduces every three hours. So if you ferment in your factory for four hours, you've got almost nothing. And that's why they add to commercial yogurts, gel and gum, xanthan gum, carrageenan, all those thickeners because there ain't nothing in there. So I took the microbes of interest, so different microbes than conventional yogurt, and fermented for 36 hours, 12 doublings, We did flow cytometry. It's a means of counting microbes on these yogurts. And we're getting upwards of 260 billion counts of bacteria per half cup serving. And And it's rich and delicious, by the way. So we ferment these microbes with those very specific characteristics that I think made it effective against SIBO. And so far, we've only done this in about 25 people, 90% have normalized their breath hydrogen gas and got rid of the symptoms of SIBO, like joint pain, skin rash, bloating, diarrhea, et cetera. So I think that's not formal enough. We have yet to do this formally and prove once and for all in a clinical trial that this works. We've got five clinical trials planned. That's not one among them. It's going to be put off for a while. But I'm pretty well convinced that what I call SIBO yogurt, this combination of lactobacillus gasseri, lactobacillus ruteri, and bacillus coagulans, does work. And it's so benign in it because it's just yogurt. And so for that reason, I've lowered the bar. If you think you have SIBO, just make this yogurt. Amazing. And you're saying then people won't even need to 
do the antimicrobial, the herbs and the botanicals, they can just do the yogurt without that or would they need to do them together? You know, I, I caution that this is preliminary. Really, it's an experience of about 25 people, but it's not like one person got better. It's like 90% got better. Uh, and by the way, it takes longer. It's about a four-week course. And there's no harm, by the way, in consuming this yogurt f- for longer. There's nothing harmful in these microbes. They just happen to have very extravagant antibacterial effects. So I've been doing this without the herbal antibiotics. Uh, there are some people who've done both, but the problem with the herbal antibiotics is they also kill off the microbes in your yogurt. So uh, you don't want to do them concurrently. You can do them sequentially or something like that. But I think based on this, you know, if somebody's hesitant and say, you know, what, I'm a little bit afraid because as you know, there's a die off effect mm-hmm. with herbal antibiotics. It's essentially a rapid surge in endotoxin. It's endotoxemia. And so it's very scary because I've seen it many times and panic attacks, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, depression, fatigue, low-grade fever, muscle aches, just like the flu. And it lasts typically a few days. Of course, there are ways, as you know, to reduce some of those symptoms like uh, activated charcoal. But it's very scary. Now, there is some die-off with the yogurt or what we presume to be die-off. It's not quite as extravagant as, say, with rifaximin or the herbal antibiotics, but people do seem to experience some die-off, some measure of dark moods. But if people are told, listen, that's an evidence of your successful killing off of unhealthy microbes, they typically get through it without a problem. Yeah. Well, and I think just like with cleansing, if people know that that's what it is, they can always slow down. You know, sometimes when I have clients going through a cleanse and they're experiencing those issues, I tell them, okay, stop for three days and then let's restart at a quarter dose and go up. So then, you know, and we're doing binders along the way. So it just helps to manage it. So I'm assuming the same can be with the yogurt. If there's die of, you know, maybe potentially just do a little less for the next couple of days, right? Yes, exactly. That's exactly what we do. Now, with the yogurt, do you think that some of these die-off symptoms are because the good bacteria in the yogurt are pushing out the bad ones, or are they actually killing them off? Like, is there endotoxemia still happening with that, do you think? You know, because serum LPS, that is serum endotoxin, is not a clinically available test, we can only presume. We would like to do some of those studies, by the way, to, uh, let's say we put somebody on some course to eradicate SIBO. Wouldn't it be interesting to track the course of blood levels of LPS, of endotoxin, and see how well it correlates to some of these die-off. And to my knowledge, no one's done that. I'd like to do that down the road. So there's a lot we know about SIBO. There's a lot we don't know yet about SIBO. So, But I'm very grateful. I think that we've stumbled on a way, a much softer and kind of a fun way, by the way, to eradicate SIBO. You know, if you, if you eradicate SIBO and experience health benefits, there's nothing wrong with containing the yogurt. These yogurts are fun. And one of the components of that yogurt is the uh, rotari. Lactobacillus rotari. That's the one you may have heard about. I have my entire neighborhood making rotari yogurt. I've got thousands of people making this rotari yogurt because one of the things that rotari does, and this is based on the science that came out of very elegant studies at uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, is when you restore rotari, which 96% of us have lost because of antibiotics and other factors, when you replace or restore lactobacillus rotari, takes up resins in the upper GI tract, sends a signal via the gut-brain axis to the brain to release oxytocin. Oxytocin, the hormone of love and empathy. So people say, you know what? Uh, I like my spouse better. (laughs) I like my coworkers and my family better. I introduce myself to strangers in line for, for coffee at Starbucks. But what's interesting is about it doesn't stop there. 
So you get all those wonderful social effects. By the way, at a time of record social isolation, suicide, and divorce. But it goes beyond that. When you restore rotarine, thereby oxytocin, you get, this has only been recently appreciated, you get all these other effects. You get effects like an increase in dermal collagen, reduction in skin wrinkles, uh, restoration of youthful muscle and strength. Tell me more (laughs) (laughs) about the wrinkles. Yes. So one of the effects of oxytocin is it stimulates dermal production of collagen. That's the just below the epidermis in the skin. And uh, typically within eight weeks becomes noticeable. You start to see the wrinkles, the nasolabial fold along the mouth or the crow's feet on the outside of the eyes. You start to see them recede. Now, by the way, a lot of ladies will combine this with collagen hydrolysates and hyaluronic acid, and you get even a bigger boost out of uh, losing your wrinkles by doing that. But the oxytocin effect is big. It's also one of the most important things ladies can do to preserve bone health. Good evidence that Rotori dramatically reduces the amount of bone loss you experience with aging. It also boosts libido. I'm a chronic insomniac. You know, I typically can sleep only three to four hours a night and then feel awful the next day unless I take melatonin and do something like that. Now I sleep nine hours straight through vivid dreams. And those of us who use actigraphic devices like Apple Watch or a Whoop or a Ring will see longer REM periods. So longer periods of deep restorative sleep. Appetite is suppressed. People can walk by a plate of donuts at the office and not be tempted at all. So the uh, desire for snacking in particular is essentially eradicated. Uh, So now add this all up, smoother skin, restoration of muscle and strength, preservation of bone density, increased libido. I think we could argue this is an age reversing effect. And it gets borne out when you see people who provide before and after selfies you'll see these people look commonly 10, 20 years younger. Some, it varies, of course. I've seen some cases where the changes were extravagant, where you would swear they're 30 years younger, but that's a little bit uh, uh, of an outlier effect. But people are, and little by little, we're getting smarter about who benefits and how to amplify the hope that you do respond favorably. Right, that's amazing. And so this is really all by getting the right bacteria in the yogurt that then colonizes in the upper GI tract, which then helps to release oxytocin and then have all of these effects that you just mentioned. That's amazing. And Ina, that's just one microbe. There are many other microbes that you and I can restore, you and your listeners can restore. Uh, For instance, Bifidobacterium infantis. So you may know that Bifidobacterium infantis was meant to be carried by all newborns, but 90% of newborns don't have it because they got antibiotics when they were delivered, Mom got antibiotics. Maybe mom had her microbiome disrupted, couldn't pass it on to the child. A lot of reasons. So 90% of newborns don't have Bifidobacterium infantis. And Bifidobacterium infantis is necessary for a newborn to be able to digest mother's breast milk. Because mother's breast milk, as you know, has human milk oligosaccharides. And if the baby doesn't have infantis, it can't digest those oligosaccharides. And baby has diarrhea, uh, has a lot more... Uh, fussing and colic, doesn't grow as well, doesn't have neurodevelopmental progress like they should, and later on in life have more asthma, more autoimmune diseases, more type 1 diabetes, and have lower IQs. So there's a commercial strain of Infantis. It's called Avivo, E-V-I-V-O. It's the EVC-001 strain. 
And the company has very good evidence to show that when mom expresses breast milk and feeds it to the baby mixed with this probiotic, the baby has fewer bowel movements, 50% fewer diaper changes from mom and dad. It's more likely to sleep through the night, less colic, longer naps, and then later on as older kids, less asthma, less autoimmune disease, and higher IQs. But I tell moms, let's go one step further. Let's get that uh, infantis. When mom is pregnant, let's make yogurt out of it with our special way of prolonged fermentation, hundreds of billions of microbes. Mom consumes the yogurt, it's delicious, and she populates her birth canal and her breasts with this. And then when she delivers and breastfeeds the baby, she gives it to the baby the way it was supposed to have been done in the context of her broader microbiome, which I think is better than feeding it only as a probiotic. Moms can still feed it to their baby, but I think it's better. And you know what? Infantis is also healthy for mom. And I'm assuming consuming it in yogurt form with this fermentation is going to be better than getting it through a supplement. The, the supplement, as you, as you know, Ina, when you buy a supplement, a probiotic supplement, you're typically sold 2 billion, 8 billion, sometimes more. But it's becoming clearer and clearer to really have meaningful and big effects. You really need hundreds of billions, if not trillions. So that's the trend. Uh, that's why we measured the number of microbes in our yogurts. And we're getting, and we're trying to find ways to increase it even further. Uh, one of the effects I had, by the way, I got a, uh, this is not commercially available, but I got a very super duper strain of Reuteri that comes at 600 billion per gram. So a little spec, 600 billion. And it, this is a little embarrassing, you know, I haven't been in love for many years. I'm 64 years old. Right? So <laughs> I had this, uh, this yogurt I made from this very super high potency Reuteri. And I had this dream where I was deeply in love with this woman who actually told me her name, her full name. I never had that experience before in a dream. Okay, Someone's name, I could see her very clearly. And you didn't know her at the time. I did not know her. I woke up. And you know, the feelings of being in love are unmistakable, right? They're very yeah. clear. I woke up with those feelings. I haven't experienced in, in a long, long time. And of course, it was my imagination because there was nobody really there. But it was, and it persisted for several hours. And I thought- this was after I consumed this very high potency rotary. So I'm trying to find ways to put that to better work. Now, of course, validated better than just my N of one experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But oh my gosh, that's so interesting. Well, maybe the universe is trying to tell you something also <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> it was intoxicating. And so I've tried to reproduce it. I haven't been successful yet. So maybe, I don't think it was my imagination though. But I'm, we're, we're working on it. Yeah, well, no, something, I mean, your dreams, obviously everything that's happening to you in your day and in your life is going to come out in your dreams, right? And so some of those feelings, I mean, even if it is your imagination, let's just say, right, it's still going to be governed by something that's happening. So there's definitely a biochemical response. And, you know, the lengthening of REM sleep. So, of course, REM is the restorative phase that helps you maintain kind of mental stability, so if we get a 20, 25% lengthening of REM sleep, I, I believe it's safe to assume that will translate into better emotional and mental health over time, especially if conducted over months and years. And with the REM sleep, is that from the Infantis or from the Ruteri or is it a specific microbe or is it all of them? We've only looked at it with Ruteri. You, you, can, you can appreciate there's so much here. So I'm a chronic insomniac and I 
really have struggled with sleep for decades. And I think going through medical training really screwed me up too because it disrupts your sleep habits. Yeah. <laughs> and so getting the rotor eye, I went from three, four hours of disrupted sleep, waking up, watching TV, reading books, all that, all that stuff to nine hours straight through. Then I added yogurt made from lactobacillus casei, C-A-S-E-I, the Shirota strain, S-H-I-R-O-T-A. It's available as a commercial product called Yakult, of all things. It was developed in Japan. It's sold to you as this little kind of garbage drink full of sugar and skim milk. But I just wanted the microbe. I didn't care about it. So we fermented from that commercial product. And of course, they sell it to, I think it's something like 8.5 billion per two ounce serving. Well, we're, we're going to ferment to get two or 300 billion. Why well, made yogurt out of this? It caused mental clarity. And that's been described, by the way, in the formal scientific literature. Increased mental clarity, reduced stress. But for me, I was sleeping 12 hours a night. You know, I had to stop it wow. because I was sleeping too much. <laughs> 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 but some people have been using the KCI Shirota yogurt uh, by itself for sleep. And it seemed it's not 100% of people. There's some variation. I don't know why. But many people do get deep, profound sleep from the KCI Shirota with or without the uh, lactobacillus rotori. So you know, the, the yogurts, I, I harp on the yogurts because it gives you and me an opportunity to really increase bacterial counts. And you know what? It really, they're, they're delicious. They t- taste great with some blueberries and chia seeds. Now with the yogurts, can they be in a non-dairy base? They can. So it's easy to make with coconut milk, but you have to add a couple extra steps. We use guar gum, which is a prebiotic fiber, to thicken it up and keep separ- keep it from separating. Because coconut milk loves to separate the fat and liquid. So you have to keep it from separating. We use guar gum. We also use a stick blender or some blender and blend for a while till it gets really thick. That recipe is in the super gut book. There's a, there's a sequence you have to follow to keep it from separating. I've also fermented all kinds of things. One of my favorites, that's not in the book, by the way, by the way, it's because it's relatively new, is Saccharomyces boulardii cider. It's very easy. All people have to do is get some uh, apple cider, the cloudy stuff, not the apple juice that's clear and devoid of nutrients, but apple juice. I just take a bottle and add, to get started, a capsule of commercial Saccharomyces boulardii, which is the fungus, of course. It's the Mm -hmm. relative of Saccharomyces cerevisiae used to ferment breads and beer and wine. But boulardii has been shown to have fairly extravagant beneficial effects. So... I added a capsule to a large bottle of apple cider. Leave the top loose because you'll be shocked at how much carbon dioxide is produced. If you, if you cap it too tightly and don't vent it, it can explode the glass. <laughs> or get one of those traps that intermittently allow high pressure to be released. They're like t- a couple dollars in home brewing stores, br- uh, beer brewing stores. Mm-hmm. But in 48 hours, I tested it for sugar. The sugar is cut by half by the fungal fermentation. And if you drink four ounces, all you're getting is about four grams net carbs. And it's a great way to get Saccharomyces boulardii health effects and then put it in the refrigerator so it stops fermenting. Because if you let it go further, like five to seven days, you're going to get hard cider. That is lots of alcohol. And we don't necessarily want that. But this has been a real easy, inexpensive way. Because the great thing about these yogurts and other fermentation projects is this all can get very expensive. You know, I see people spending $70, $80, $90 a month for a single probiotic. Well, these kinds of fermentation projects allow you to buy a probiotic or share it with somebody, use one capsule, 
And as long as you keep it fermenting, and these these yogurts last for four weeks in the refrigerator, you never have to buy the probiotic again. So if you make the Saccharomyces boulardii cider, you never have to buy the Saccharomyces boulardii ever again because you can just you, you, you can perpetuate it in your cider. Now, I love probiotics, obviously, but I think with the yogurts, you know, it's just, it, it comes from food, you know, so it's a little bit different. And then, it, like you said, it's a lot stronger, but even if you get a strong probiotic, you still, I think, sometimes wonder, you know, what happens and, at, you know, especially if it's maybe close to expiration, right? If like you didn't just get it, you know, some of those bacteria die off. So that fermentation, you know, keeps them going, which I think is amazing. Yeah. You know, as you know, you know, modern people have become so squeamish about fermented foods you know, thinking that that cloudy, soupy mix is somehow rotten. So ever since Frigidaire developed Freon in 1927 and made refrigeration an affordable process, we all forgot that fermentation is not just a natural process, it's essential for human health. So, you know, Europeans and Asians are better at this than we are, but a, re- a reintroduction of foods like fermented sauerkrauts, kimchi, kefirs, uh, yogurts, especially the yogurts made the right way, not mm-hmm. the commercial way. Right. Fermented right. veggies. You know, a lot of these things, I have a mixture of cubed eggplant, onions, garlic, green peppers, uh, and when available, green tomatoes fermenting. And I fermented now for about six weeks on the counter. And it's delicious. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, what about people who have issues with histamine? Can they consume these and do you have any suggestions for them on how they can better tolerate them? So as, as you put out in the beginning, that means they have SIBO and they can get very sick by eating histamine containing foods like wine or cheese. And so what we've been doing is address the SIBO first. Don't consume the fermented foods. In that case, you might have to resort to like herbal antibiotics because they might not be able to tolerate the yogurts. I think you can try the yogurt, but if they're intolerant, you can always resort to the herbal antibiotics or of course, conventional antibiotics. And then when you're confident, maybe you have the air device and you prove your H2 negative or the symptoms you were having, let's say diarrhea, gas, bloating, or eczema, or whatever your sign was, when that recedes, it might be then a good time to consider adding back fermented foods in some form. You know, Erica and Justin Sonnenberg are this husband-wife microbiology couple at Stanford University, who've been very, very helpful in publishing very good data. One of the data, one of the studies they just published about two months ago looked very simple. They compared what happens to the microbiome of people if they consume a lot of fermented foods versus consuming a lot of prebiotic fibers that feed microbes. And hands down, the fermented foods outperform the prebiotic fibers are very helpful too, but the fermented foods generated huge changes in microbiome composition. And interestingly, the microbes in fermented foods like Leuconostoc mesenteroides or Pediococcus penthesaceus or Lactobacillus brevis, those are the microbes in sauerkraut, kimchi, et cetera. You consume those foods. It's not those species that take up residence. It's new species. No one knows how or why. It could be that those microbes were present all along and just latent in small numbers, or you acquired them. Maybe the change allowed you to acquire them from your environment. Nobody knows where they came from. But the diversity of species that emerges when you consume fermented foods, hands down, is a very powerful and probably one of the most powerful effects you can uh, accomplish in restoring a normal microbiome. Yeah. I mean, it must be somehow having an effect um, 
on feeding, you know, short chain fatty acids and, you know, doing something to just allow them proliferate. And thereby all kinds of wonderful metabolic benefits like reductions in blood sugar, insulin, fatty liver, blood pressure. You know, when you talk about reprogramming the microbiome, you are really reprogramming the microbiome, you know, this way. It's it's really neat. And you know, I love, you know, I think you and I would agree that people are too reliant on prescription drugs. Oh, yes. And the things we're doing, the things you and I are talking about, restoring the a normal, healthy microbiome, reducing endotoxemia, et cetera, fermented foods. These are very powerful tools. I'm very grateful that we arrive at a time in, in our lifetimes where we have tools that are so extraordinarily, and we're talking about smoother skin, deeper sleep, return of youthful muscle, reduction of arthritis pain. We're talking about some very big effects that until recently were all thought to be thought to be opportunities for pharmaceuticals. And then also, I'm assuming you've probably seen some things in terms of fat loss and weight loss, right? Because bacteria has so much to do with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. So one of the things we experience when we address the microbiome is that reduction in endotoxemia. When this process was validated in 2007 by Dr. Patrice Canny's group in Belgium, they showed that it's endotoxemia that is a major driver of insulin resistance. And you know that insulin resistance is the driving force behind weight gain, fat, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver, high triglycerides, coronary disease, cancers, dementia. So insulin resistance, a fundamental driving force, because if your brain, liver, and muscle don't respond to insulin, your pancreas compensates by producing 10, 30, 50 times more insulin. And so your blood levels of insulin are sky high. That causes weight gain, visceral fat, expansion of your waist, and all those health conditions. Well, when you get rid of endotoxemia, insulin levels plummet, and it allows you to lose weight at a rapid pace. Now, even better, you know, one of the things I talk about in my super gut book is I, I do resurrect some of my wheat belly concepts because they are still very powerful. And that includes considering the elimination of this new thing added to the human diet, modern high yield semi-dwarf wheat created in a laboratory and the addressing nutrient deficiencies that are common to modern people like magnesium because we drink filtered water, vitamin D because we live indoors and wear clothes and some others. And all those, all those strategies reverse insulin resistance and even more so when you address SIBO, dysbiosis and endotoxemia. And people do lose extravagant amounts of weight lose their waist circumference. And, you know, there's even additional advantages. So the lactobacillus gasseri we talked about, the bacterias in powerhouse, there are two strains that even if you did nothing else, didn't change your diet, didn't exercise, nothing, just took gasseri, your waist can shrink by an, about an inch in three months. And the cross-sectional area of visceral fat, as seen by CAT scan or MRI, can shrink substantially, which, of course, by in and of itself is a huge health advantage. And that could be put into yogurt as well, right? And you can make yogurt. That's right. Exactly right. And never have to buy the probiotic after the first time. You know, I have people on social media, they say, hey, I bought the gas, right? It cost me, used to cost about $90 because we had to get it from South Korea. But now there's a, an American retailer that sells it for about, I think, $24. You know what people do? They say, I bought it. I only needed one or two capsules and I, I save a few just for future in case, but do you, anybody want to share it? They go on Facebook or other social media, <laughs> or the blog, and they share their microbes and they save money that way. How clever. 
Now, I also wanted to ask you, when it comes to this overgrowth, SIBO, SIFO, one of the things that we see is that it can reflare or it could come back. So what advice do you have for people to help to prevent the reoccurrence or if reoccurrence happens, how they can, you know, be on top of it and make sure they get it down right away? You know, with fungal overgrowth in particular, it takes a long effort. So as you know, SIBO can be eradicated often in a couple of weeks, a month, something like that. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time. CFO, in my experience, is more like a two, three, or more month-long process. Yes, agreed. And it loves to recur. I think it's due to the slow growth characteristics of fungal species and their capacity to sequester themselves in their own biofilms. That is a mucus barrier they provide that keeps them sequestered away from any antifungal effects. So they're tougher to eradicate. But the things that we do, that, that um, Saccharomyces boulardii cider I mentioned, that's a really good way to help eradicate fungi and also prevent recurrences. Because even though it's a fungus itself, it competes with fungal species. And so it's very helpful for preventing recurrences. Not consuming sugars, added sugars is really helpful because fungi really do thrive on sugars. Sad to say, I love wine, alcohol also seems to be a cultivating agent for fungi. So you don't want to overdo wine or other sources of alcohol. But that's what we've been doing, as well as reordering the bacterial populations. Because when you have fungal overgrowth, it should be interpreted as meaning you also have bacterial disruption. That is, the bacteria were supposed to be keeping fungi in check, and somehow they didn't do their job. So it means that some form of disruption of the bacterial populations allowed CFO to emerge. So it does mean you have to pay attention to your bacterial populations as well. Right. And then for the SIBO, I'm assuming similar as well, because that tends to reoccur a lot too. I know motility is a big thing for people. So kind of keeping everything flowing, right? Keeping your bowels moving is really important. Yeah. I've had a lot of success with the wheat and grain elimination, because one of the things that happens when you do that is you're eliminating what's called the gliadin protein of wheat, and related proteins in other grains like cecalin and rye and hordein and barley. These, because humans lack the digestive enzymes that break down those proteins, they're not broken down to single amino acids, but to peptide fragments, four or five amino acid long peptide fragments that are opioids. In the brain, they stimulate appetite. In the GI tract, it causes intestinal slowing or constipation. So some of the worst constipation I've ever seen called obstipation. These are people move their bowels every two or three weeks. Oh, gosh. I've seen them miraculously disappear within days of uh, eliminating the gliadin protein of wheat. So that's that's an advantage. You know, magnesium, because we all drink filtered water, either your city filters it or you may have a home filtration system. And home water filtration removes virtually all magnesium. And magnesium is important for so many reasons, but including uh, transit transit time through the GI tract. So getting magnesium restored is not only helpful for reducing osteoporosis, heart rhythm disorders, blood sugar, and blood pressure. It's also useful restoring intestinal transit. That's how we've been doing it uh, before we get to the uh, naloxones and those kinds of things. That that helps. And the, the magnesium, I believe we need formal data, probably reduces the likelihood you have archaea overgrowth. That is methanogenic SIBO or methanogen overgrowth more properly. Because that's another issue, of course, in people who are constipated. That's a whole other topic as well. But yeah, that is important for sure. That makes sense. Dr. Davis, um, this has been so informative. You're just such a wealth of information here. Tell everyone, where can they pick up your book? 
the book Super Gut is available in all major bookstores, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, of course, your neighborhood bookstore. That's the, that's the place I would go to support the local bookstores. I've had the Wheat Belly blog for over 10 years. I've transitioned over to Dr. Davis Infinite Health only because I had too many social media sites and blogs to keep up. So it's now Dr. Davis Infinite Health. And that's where I see new conversations, all the new things like the Saccharomyces boulardii cider, new ideas, SIBO yogurt, uh, as well as a lot of the super gut concepts. And there's also a place where if you want, we also meet every, usually Wednesday nights on a Zoom meeting, me and about 70 to 100 people. And we talk about these kinds of things. That's all Dr. Davis Infinite Health. Oh, that's wonderful. I think that's such a great resource. And your book just has so much information. I have it right here. And you know, there's just so much there from just giving everyone such a good summary of what's happening and why to then exactly what to do, recipes and the yogurt. Um, there's so much great stuff there. So everyone, please pick up the book. And Dr. Davis, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate all of this information. And thank you for all your hard work. You're doing a lot of good because you know what? Uh, people like you and me are no longer welcome on major media because direct consumer drug advertising now dominates the consciousness of major media. And they don't want people talking about health. So what you're doing in your podcast is absolutely essential to getting words like this out. As you just heard, our microbiome is the key to pretty much everything, but especially our digestion. I knew Alexander needed gut support, but to better identify where to start and what to address first, we did a few tests. We did a stool test, a breath test, and an organic acid test. When we looked at the results of her breath test, we saw SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. But we also saw yeast overgrowth in her O test, which would be CFO, or small intestinal yeast overgrowth, or fungal overgrowth. Now, stool is not the best to assess yeast, so that's why I like using organic acids for that. So what we did first is we did a SIBO cleanse and we used a product called FC Cytal and Dysbiocide by Biotics, which I use a lot. And along with that, I used charcoal as a binder. This way she would have less potential detox reactions. Because she had this digestive issues for such a long time, I thought that she probably had some biofilms. And so for this, we used a product called Interface. And what that does, it's almost like a digestive enzyme, but you take it on an empty stomach and it helps to break up the biofilm. So this way, if the bacteria create these shields and try to protect themselves against your own immune system, we'd break up those shields so that we can better attack the bacteria. Now, her stool test also showed some digestive insufficiency. It wasn't so much digestive enzymes, but it was more issues with digesting protein and fat. So what we did is we used some betaine HCL, which helps to bump up stomach acid to better digest proteins and bile support with a product called beta TCP from Biotics, which helps to support bile. It thins out the bile and it helps the bile to come out easier so that it can better emulsify the fats. After doing this, which took about 10 weeks, we then added in some homemade yogurts and we did that with a coconut base just because she was very sensitive to dairy. We started very small where she would do just a tablespoon of the yogurt. We did that for a few days and then we slowly ramped it up over the course of about three weeks. As we did that, Alexandra really started to see changes. 
her gas got a lot better and her bowel movements normalized. Now, at that point, we added a product called Enterovite, which is by Apex Energetics. And this is a short chain fatty acid product. And what that does is it helps to heal the gut, but also diversify the microbiome even further. And then as we were doing that, we started to introduce some new foods while we were still continuing on the homemade yogurts for the fermented foods. Now, in addition to all of the improvement in digestion that she saw, as we were doing this, she also saw her mood lift and much more mental clarity. She was so excited. And of course, so was I. If Alexandra sounds like someone you know, can you please share this episode with them? I would so appreciate it. And please be sure that you're subscribed to the show so that you never miss an episode. Please remember that when it comes to your health issues, don't give up. No matter what you're dealing with, there is likely something that you can do. The answers really are out there. We just have to make sure that we look in the right place. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.